Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. Hey, Teresa. Hey, Sherry. This has been and continues to be a wild ride. As we grow to our next season, we thought it would be helpful to look back on season one to revisit the koshas through their definitions and practices. In addition to our voices, you will hear samples from all of our fabulous season one guests that support the koshas in context. What's interesting in looking back is how interrelated the koshas are. We know that and it's said as much throughout the episodes, but listening to the guests clarify it really drives it home. So Shauna was our first guest for the food body. She touched on the mind and wove beautifully into and around the realm of joy and bliss, how it feels in the body and is expressed in the world. Val was our guest for the vital energy body. She shared its essence through stories relating to the mind and energy. Wendy, our guest for the mental sheath, moved into the body as related to the mind, the energy field, and so much more. Amy, guest for the Wisdom Body, shared her journey in the mind and talked a great deal about working with energy. Susanna, well, she was our guest for the Bliss Body, and she encapsulated it all as she integrated body, energy, mind, wisdom, and bliss. Our next season will build on this foundation. Enjoy the trip down memory lane. We'd like to share with you the model of the koshas. So the kosha model comes from a yoga yoga tradition. And I'm looking at the Google translation right now just to give some structure to this. But it says the Sanskrit word ana means food and the word maya means appearance. And so appearance is can also be translated as illusion. You know, don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. But so the koshas are layers, they're sheaths. They are, if you, if you were to Google the koshas, you might find a picture of an onion, you know, with layers that start out with the food body and then get smaller. Um, you might find a Russian doll model picture that shows the stacking and of these, of these layers. But if you can, for just this purpose, imagine that all of these layers are of equal size and equal significance because they are interdependent. They are the things that make up our whole selves. So the koshas are layers. We have anamaya kosha, which we're going to deal with today, is the food body. It's the appearance, the feeling of this physical body, the container. 
There are four others that we will be addressing as we go. The idea that we are an integrated whole. So as we move forward in Anamaya Kosha and we're talking about it, we will work as, as well as we can to stick to the food body. But they are so integrated that it is sometimes hard to keep them separate, even in conversation. The, the physical body and what happens and what we experience through the physical body, the senses, the felt sense, the somatic part of our lifestyle, this all happens in the physical body. But all of those somatic experiences also touch our energetic body, our thoughts, our emotions, they lend themselves to our acquired wisdom and our experience of what bliss is. But so we start with the food body. We start with the thing we can see. That's where we're going to begin. And I think I'll, I'll start if it's okay with you, Sherry. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Talk okay. to us about the body, Teresa. Let's talk about the body. I love the body. I have to say here, my favorite thing that I teach in the workshop, because um, I'm a language geek too, is that we talk about happiness a lot in this culture, and we it's written into the Declaration of Independence as we have the right to pursue happiness, right? Notice it's not the right to happiness. <laughs> it's right for the pursuit, the chase. And happiness, the word, comes from the 14th century Old Norse word, which means chance and luck. And it's the same root that makes up happenstance, which is a random occurrence. So if you understand that happiness is something outside of your body, it's something that happens if you happen to be in the right time and random occurrence happens to you. If you're lucky enough to win the lottery, if you're lucky, lucky enough to work really, 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 really hard, and then you're recognized. But joy from the 1200 means an intense physical delight. Joy is of the body. Happiness is of the mind and the theory. And joy is in the body. And that's why I prefer it to happiness. What you just said made me feel like, what does joy, taking away the emotional piece that it feels mm. good or it feels, you know, lovely or any other adjective that would, what does mm. joy feel like in the physical body? Make a list of your joys, but not big joys. Um, your small personal joys. Like I love the first cup of coffee in the morning. I do a meditation with Thich Nhat Hanh about smelling and savoring and holding the warm cup and then taking my first sip. And what that is, is just being fully present. And it's really hard in this culture to, to just be fully present. It's hard for humans in general. But what I find is that Anything that gives us joy where it's a creative act, where you're drawing something and you forget everything else, or you're playing sports, or you are in a moment of passion, or you are reading a book and no one is bothering you and you get to dive into that world. They're all intensely personal. Nobody has the same joys. You know, introverts, extroverts, ADHD, neurodivergency, everyone has a different thing that gives them joy. But in that moment, you are simply there. You're not worried you're not good enough. You're not worried you're not living it enough. You are just in the moment and at rest. And that I feel like is joy. When I began Gluten-Free Girl, I'd always thought of food as my joy. And for a number of years, it was felt like my only joy when I was a kid. So I've always been attuned to it. And when I finally got di diagnosed with celiac, I had been through six months of really what appeared to be fatal illness. People were really writing me off thinking I had cancer of some kind they couldn't figure out. 
So when I found out that all I had to do was avoid eating gluten, I thought, well, hey, you know, peaches are gluten-free and steak is gluten-free and most chocolates are gluten-free. So whatever, I'm fine. You know, Um, I don't have to do chemotherapy. I don't have to do surgery. I don't have to take medication the rest of my life. I'm going to be able to heal my body by myself by doing, eating good food. Like this is great. And at the same time, I looked all around the internet. This is 2005. So it's a very different land. There was nothing. There was no information. And what small amount of information there was, was dreary. It was a lot of women who felt lousy about themselves because they couldn't eat gluten and they felt like they were standing out at a party and they didn't fit in. And, you know, oh, we'll never eat at a restaurant again. I go to these forums and they could, what? So when I wrote Gluten Free Girl and started writing just for friends, I was equal parts joyful, truly. Like, have you ever eaten amaranth? Like, this thing is amazing. The leaves, you know, I get on my excitement. But at the same time, I was also pissed off that I had never heard of this when it was the most underdiagnosed disease in America. And so my teaching kicked in and I began writing with that. But I also just like, you know, I want you to be enthusiastic about this too. And my motto always was stop thinking about the gluten. Just try every food you've never heard of that is gluten-free you know, omoboshi plum paste and um, um, harissa and, you know, whatever it might be, chickpea pasta, which I now adore. And so I think that's why people were really drawn to the website. They, the first person found it. I thought, who's this crazy person, stranger, leaving me a comment. And then it grew from there because it was really just for friends. And there was a real community there. The first three or four years was true community. It was also before social media existed. So you could actually have community in the comment section. And that's where the joy was for me. Absolutely. And then it became commercial and then it, you know, capitalism and it became less joyful <laughs> because our, our brains like to build patterns. Our brains like certainty and habits are certainty. We get up at the same time and we drink our coffee, you know, out of coffee. Ah, you know, that's why everyone freaks, not just because of the coffee, but because we want our routine. So let's use that brain's propensity and build a habit of joy instead. Once you make a habit that sticks, those neurons that fire together, wire together. And you've suddenly not only created a habit that will stick, which helps with our uncertainty, but you've created a habit of joy. And I find that particularly for women, we are enculturated to not put ourselves first. We are told that we need to do everything for our families, for our community, for our partners, whatever it might be. We all, a lot of us come last, especially if you're raised in trauma. So deciding that your life can be more joyful, making habit is actually also a way of you teaching yourself that you matter too. I'm going to offer uh, a mantra today. And the mantra is, it means may all beings everywhere be happy and free. And at some point, I believe Sharon Gannon from Jiva Mukti added, and may our words, thoughts, and actions somehow contribute to that happiness and freedom. Now, she didn't add it in Sanskrit, just added it to the meaning, the overall meaning of this mantra. The reason I picked this one is because I think it is all pervasive. I think that the word being, may all beings, may all physical beings that contain all of these koshas, um, also have the liberty and freedom of, of happiness. And so it also, it asks us to live in that reflection and to see that we are all interconnected. And so that's what I'm going to offer today. I'm going to say the words and then I'll pause so that at home you can either say them out loud. If you already know them, you can just begin. The words are, there are only four words. First one is loka. Loka. The second one is samasta. Samasta. Sukhino. 
Sukhino. Bhavantu. Bhavantu. Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu. Now I'm going to chant it three times and we'll end with Om. You can join in anytime. You can start with me or you can just join in. I like to bring my hands to my heart in prayer pose to connect my thumbs to my heart. I had a teacher who once said, when you work with your hands, you work with your heart. And so that brings the physical body in connection to your own beating heart. Loka Samasta. Suki no bhavantu, loka samasta, suki no bhavantu, loka samasta, suki no bhavantu. And if you have bowed your head naturally or out of your own choice, you can begin to lift your head, drop your hands, and gently, if you closed your eyes, blink them back. Just take a moment to notice if you chanted, there's any residual vibration in the body, noticing where it is more prominent, and then allow that vibration to flow out through its most local exit point. <laughs> it could be your fingers, it could be your toes, it could be your kneecaps or your nose. That rhymed. It could be your ears or the top of your head. So when you're ready, you can come fully back. Today, we want to talk a little bit about pranamaya, which is the vitality and the energy. Pranamaya kosha, this is life force, right? This is our ability to look at our own personal vitality and have an expressiveness of that vitality. Pranamaya kosha is the... It's the bridge between the mind and the body. It's what happens in my body when I experience the things that make me feel alive. I want to talk about a mudra because I do love talking about mudras for vital energy. And so this mudra is called the gesture of vital energy. So for anybody who's out there listening, it's so simple to do. Just let your arms rest at your side body. The hands are just cupped, but at a distance apart. So they're the width of your body. Keep your fingers all straight. And as if you're going to put your hands around a ball, uh -huh. right? Like you're going to be holding a globe between your hands. So all the fingers are outstretched with just the tiniest little bend in them as if you were wrapping your hands around a ball. And then just let the arms rest at any place that's comfortable that will allow the shoulders to come back and down. And as you do, notice the sensations in the palms of your hands. Maybe let the eyes rest, the downward gaze, or closed if you feel more comfortable that way. 
and allowing the mind to soften and settle. I invite you to escort your attention to the space between your hands. As my voice fades off for a few breaths to let you rest in your own experience. Anamaya Kosha allows us to cultivate a relationship with our breath that goes beyond the breath and noticing all the energetic flow throughout our systems, our energy, and our well being. When you feel ready, you can simply allow the mudra to rest in your lap. One that I've been working on lately, um, using technology too. So I have on my app, in my, um, uh, in my phone, in my um, reminders, and I've called it Today's Intentions. And I, to give myself some grace, I've been thinking about what is the least amount that I can do today that I feel productive. And so it's like, today I'm going to do at least, and then I set a timer for myself, and a couple of hours, it'll remind me. And what's cool about it, each day I do it, um, some of the things that I said I was going to do, I couldn't do for whatever reason. So instead of writing them off and putting them on another list, they just stay there until I click that it's done. And, and so that's a way for my brain to let go of the running to-do list and say, it's okay, I've already captured it. And so let's the whole brain be in this moment, if you will. That's a lot, but that's what I've been really thinking about a lot lately, that how do I set my day, the intentions for the day? And then I think I have one of those personalities that I'm driven by my purpose. And that's what I was gonna say earlier, it's all connected to my purpose, right? So I believe 95% of what I do is directly um, connected to my purpose, which is to use my gifts and talents to encourage, inspire, and then even power others to seek and find their life's potential so that together we can make the world a better place. We're up to Monomaya Kosha. Today we'll be talking about the mind and the emotions. And working through that, that's a part of this layer. So, Teresa, talk to us about a more structured definition of what mana maya kosha is. This is the third sheath. I'm going to go right to mana, right? So the first part of the word is mana. And there's a lot of interpretations. We do a lot of research looking at different people's views and how they communicate. But I look at manas as our thought and with a link to our emotions. So this is our thought, our will our emotional energy and how we process those thoughts. I think in Manamaya Kosha, we do have those five senses, but we also attributed the five senses to Anamaya Kosha. And I think they may reside, and of course, I'm no expert, but I do a lot of reading and research. I think they reside in Anamaya Kosha, but they're processed through Manamaya Kosha. This is where we take all of these experiences and let them run through our thoughts, run through our emotions. We decide or react to a perception that we've created. And maybe at times 
they reveal some mental patterns. So anybody who really knows me knows that patterns are something that I look at a lot, right? And I started with physical anamaya postural analysis as the patterns or the maps that I've used initially. But those maps very quickly led me to this idea that we have the same patterns of perception, the same patterns in our mental body, and that sometimes that we function automatically to input and respond reflexively without stopping. And I know that, Sherry, both you and I have talked about um, in this podcast how we've learned to slow down, maybe consider our words or our patterns, and then step forward, not reflexively, but with intentional choice. When I was on Yogapedia today, just kind of, you know, looking around, trying to find fresh language or ways to kind of manage the knowledge that I have acquired with maybe things, the, the blind spots that I might not be seeing. And I found this really interesting. They said that Manamaya Kosha is said, it is related to the yogic philosophy of personality and ego, that it is it creates the illusion. We know that Maya, one of the definitions of Maya is illusion or appearance, that it creates the illusion of a separate I and you. So while the skin may discern one being from another, this kosha is reminding us that it's an illusion that we're separate. One of the things that I came across in the study of this Manamaya kosha uh, is very culturally centric. This idea that you know, in the West, we are our minds are something we really need are, we need to learn to work with in a productive way. That they were saying that uh, the way to kind of manage or work with Manamaya Kosha is to get beyond Anamaya and Pranamaya, get beyond the body and the energy layers. And they suggest that the practice for that, that action is Yoga Nidra, which is yogic sleep. And it's a very specific meditation that you know rests the body but it takes you through the koshas. It takes you through the layers in a way that is not didactic. It's not, you know, trying to teach the koshas or have a casual conversation about the koshas, but it's giving you an embodied experience of letting yourself move through your body, your energy, your mind, your wisdom, your intuition, all of that, while never leaving a sense, never abandoning one kosha for another. It's just this integration of these koshas in an experience. I want to offer you is something called the perfect 10. And I want to offer it because I think the word, the word perfect will land on each one of you in the way that you think about it in your, from your own experience, whatever the stories are from our lives that have created a relationship to the word perfect. Being perfect in this exercise is not the point at all. Sorry, perfectionists. It's not the point. In fact, there is no perfect. My very first yoga teacher, who I love so much, she used to say, there is no such thing as perfect, and you already are. I think about that a lot. So the perfect 10 is breathing and counting up to 10. That's simple enough. We count on the inhalation. So we breathe in one, exhale, breathe in two, exhale, and so on, all the way up to 10. But where it becomes more of a meditation is 
When you become aware that your mind has wandered from the counting in the breath, go back to one. Keep going back to one. So if by you get to three and you're thinking about how long am I, you're thinking, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm counting and breathing. Go back to one. If you get to five and you're like, oh, I'm almost done. Go back to one. You get to six and you're like, oh, shit, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Back to one. And you just keep going back to one. So even if you get to three, 10 times, or you get to 10 once, and then you'll start again, it's not even the point. It's we're becoming more familiar with the nature of our thinking. And we're not judging. We're being kind and friendly to ourselves. We're not judging. Oh, shit, I didn't do it again. I thought it for again. Like, fuck, why is it always for, you know, let all of that go. And just go back to one. Know that that's part of the game. It's part of the process. It's part of the practice. So you take a seat. Anytime we practice, we have a nice tall seat. We take a breath. We settle. Hands can be palms face down. They can be face up. But find a comfortable seat. Either close your eyes or let your gaze drop to four to six feet in front of you. Get a sense of your breath. We'll take a breath in. We'll count to one. Exhale, breathe in two, exhale at your pace, inhale three, exhale, and you're on your own for a few moments. Counting on the inhalation and being mindful of the exhalation. Breathing in and breathing out. And at the bottom of your next exhalation, regardless of where you were, we may not even have practiced long enough to get to 10. That's okay, let it go. I was kind of the nerdy little kid who read a lot of books. I mean, I was always outside playing, you know, but I was the nerdy little kid who read a lot of books. And um, then of course, when you start down the path of getting trained for medical school and the medical profession, it's all very intellectual. And I was literally told in training, ignore your intuition, pay attention to science. So I said, fine, no problem. And, um, I really, really lived it, totally lived in my head. I mean, I tell people all the time, I, here's where I was, the body just carried the head around for decades, you know, never really learned to live down here. And it was, it probably started actually in my early thirties when of course I had just started practice finally after all those years of training and realized, oh God, I am in such bad shape because I've had all this time of not taking care of myself physically. And so I was exercising and, you know, trying to eat better. And I got to yoga. You guys will appreciate this. I got to yoga and suddenly, um, probably about four or five weeks into going multiple classes a week, I was lying in Shavasana and I went, oh, wow, this is what peaceful must feel like. And this was not something that, you know, I was familiar with. And so then a couple more weeks go by, 
I'm lying down in Shavasana at the end of class and I go, hey, wow, cool. I stayed here the whole class. I wasn't standing here holding the pose, thinking about what I needed to do on the way home. And probably six or eight months into it, I started realizing that I could listen to what my body was telling me because prior to that, every single thing I had done with my body had been about telling my brain, telling my body what to do. This is what I love about the way I get to practice medicine because I have the foundation of the biomechanical explanation of all the stuff that they taught me in school. And if that's where people are, that's the, that's what they need to hear. Cause you know, I've had many experiences in the past where clearly I can see an energetic problem, but if the person isn't, if that's not part of their consciousness, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to go there because they'll just think you're crazy and they'll walk out the door and never come back. So what I love really are people that are sort of in between and they want to hear the physical explanation, but if there's more to it, they're open to hearing that. And so people will ask me a question about, I'm not even thinking of a good example, but they'll ask me an exp- uh, you know, example of like, why did this happen? And I'll go, okay, great. Which answer would you like first? Meaning, do you want the biomechanical answer, which I can explain, it's really simple, it's very basic, or do you want me to go multiple levels beyond that about the energetic experience that you had that damaged? I mean, because, you know, we've got this energy field, and if it's damaged, then the physical body will never heal. One of the things that I thought about when I was actually kind of looking at what's going on as our culture evolves Think about it. We are now a service industry culture. We don't really do much in the way of like heavy duty manufacturing that's more physical. It's all about mental stuff. And I think it has shifted all of our energy up here. And I think about my paternal grandfather, who was this very interesting balance between a farmer with a dairy herd and a beef herd. And he was also the high school principal in this tiny little town. So he was very intellectual, but also had a really physical job. Like he split his time. And he was a really balanced person in that way. And it was only as he got, it was interesting because it was only as he got older and he was doing less physical work on the farm and more intellectual, like reading and all of that, that he started getting like, frankly, a little more unbalanced in his personality. Um, And I think that now as a culture, since we spend so much time in our heads, if you look at what is bubbling up more and more, I mean, the three of us have been in like the yoga world for decades, but it's becoming so mainstream now because I think people are needing to get that groundedness of being in their bodies because they spend so much time in their heads. And I think that the pandemic was really interesting because the people who could do the work of the service industries that were all computer-based, they were still working. We all, I think, felt a little bit out of joint in terms of you couldn't get to the gym to work out. You couldn't get to the yoga studio because they were closed. 
And we were suddenly floundering trying to keep that balance. So, but I, I do think it's because our culture has headed more and more and more toward the intellectual that we're now starting to see a resurgence of, oh, we, in our spare time, we have to do the physical stuff because we used to do it as part of our day-to-day living. I will start with the pronunciation because, you know, I mean, while it's not the most important thing, you know, someone listening might be like, hmm. So um, in the beginning, I was saying Vignanamaya and Teresa was saying Vigyanamaya, but I think it's actually a combination of both. It's Vignanamaya Kosha, Vignana, not Vignana or Vigyana, Vignana. <laughs> so imagine that end with a little squiggly line on top. Um, And this sheath is, you know, we're moving from the mental sheath, the one of the thoughts, um, Manamaya Kosha, into this Vignanamaya Kosha, which is intuition, it's wisdom, it's our acquired knowledge, but it's not, it's not so deliberative, it's not, we're not thinking about it, it's something we sense or know or feel and understand, well, between understand and know, I would say it's something we know more than even necessarily understanding. In those moments that I've had flashes of Vignanamaya, I'm not sure I understand it at all. I just kind of know when it's there. Is that helpful? That is helpful, yeah. It's that intuition, that little voice inside that you just know beyond explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we are. If someone's listening and they just need a couple of buzz words to get into the world of this kosha, Um, The words that come up are um, wisdom, intuition, that intuitiveness that we have. And in some of the research, you know, they use also mental and thoughts, the same language that would be used in Manamaya Kosha. The difference is, as you move into Vignanamaya Kosha, it's more of a higher knowledge, higher thoughts. I think Vignanamaya Kosha, if I was going to break it down, was um, building this acquired knowledge and intuition, executively being able to discern to look at, but also to notice our conditioned responses. That I think is like kind of the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? We do the work, the rainbow of work, and then we find that pot of gold. And that is, I notice my own conditioned response. And from there, I can move forward um, in a more mindful way. If you're driving or making dinner, Maybe you're out for a walk when you listen. Let's tap into our senses together. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, what do you see? And maybe you've chosen to stay in that seat and close the eyes, or they're open in another activity. But let's stay connected and notice what we see. Be aware of the sense of taste. Notice how you feel, right? The sense of touch. What's the body touching? What's touching you? Either in physical or maybe an emotional touch. And besides my voice, what do you hear? Stay connected. Be aware of all of your senses. And whether you're in a seat or in an activity, stay connected to that activity or to the mindful stillness. 
And I'm going to invite you to stay with me because I'm going to break all podcast rules and ask you to take some mindful breaths, maybe as much as 30 seconds to observe your response and reactions. Stay connected and notice when you expect to hear, to listen. Take a moment to observe your thoughts, reaction, and response to an unexpected silence. really love to hear your response. I'd love to hear your story about what came up, whether is it easy or hard to watch your own thoughts? Did they drift off? I was introduced to energy work through quantum physics, through um, matrix energetics, the work of Dr. Richard Bartlett, um, Mm -hmm. that kind of intentional intentional attraction of positive energy, intentional use of your energy. So of course, energy is an unseen force. So there's lots of visualization exercises. And in my past, very logical way, that always seemed a little far-fetched for me. There was kind of nothing to grab onto. I'm a very physical kind of a perspective person. But quantum physics made sense to me. Um, And the ability to track energetic impact and to track the differences in the brain being used for energetic work. Like there are different parts of your brain that they can notice you're using when you're intentionally meditating or using your energy for a purpose. So um, the first visualization exercise that makes the best sense to me is my favorite color is purple. I feel like I sparkle purple. So my energy, I chose it to be purple. So I have purple sparkly energy. So when I start with my grounding exercise, the first thing I do is grab all my purple sparkly energy from all over the globe, wherever it's sent, consciousness, wherever thoughts, my brain, all of that stuff, wherever my energy is, and you bring it all back to your body. So bring everything back into my control because you know I like to be in control and then um, I was taught that you want to work on your energetic field so they talk about a bubble that keeps your energy in well I love animals so I feel like a hamster ball works really well for me so here I am walking around the world with my purple sparkly energy in my hamster ball right so you can see that and I visualize everybody in their own purple sparkly balls, but everybody's balls a different color, different density, a different energy. Sometimes your hamster ball like has wide open spaces for energy exchange. Um, and sometimes it has no open spaces for no energy exchange. So the intention is to fill my ball with my energy so dense that I don't feel anyone else's energy and get the walls of my hamster ball really thick. And then once I have that, I can open up little doorways to feel other people's energy. But I've gotten much better at feeling it at the wall instead of internalizing it. So I'm an empath or an intuitive, whatever your word is. And as we grew up without awareness, we would 
intent unintentionally bring others energy in clean it up and put it back out or we would bring other people's energy in and it would wipe us out like i remember walking through a store and there was a couple fighting and all of a sudden i'm snapping at my boyfriend like it just got on me so by learning to keep my hamster ball nice and clean i can now walk by and be like oof that doesn't feel good not mine you stay outside of my hamster ball with the dogs i open up the communication so that i can read their energy or read it at the at the boundary um, but also i don't get into their energy fields so i stay in mine um, and you stay in yours and we'll have a conversation and communication about what that means and then react differently so that comes the purple energy as i got better as my energy control or mastery or however you want to say it um, i started sending my energy ahead to my appointments so the first time that i did this i was still working in software and i had a huge thing do like you know the things do and i was really stressed about it and all this stuff and my coach was like all right get up in the morning get your energy together meditate send your energy ahead picture your purple sparkles in every corner in every crevice under every desk in the coffee shop everywhere so i did that and then i drove to work and i got to work and my coworker said oh i thought you were here like a half an hour ago <laughs> right so <laughs> so like there are these reflections that there is realness to it that there is impact from it and noticing and acknowledging that those signals are happening and that you intentionally had that happen and respond is a big deal right it because it, that woo woo thing of like oh energy's not real you're not actually doing that it's so it's so real now i almost can't say i'm not doing it today we're talking about our bliss sheath the deepest deepest part of our beings, depending on the diagram you look at, but in terms of just the feeling, you know, think for a moment, like when you hear the word bliss, what comes up for you? Is there something that a moment, a thing, you know, that feeling of bliss? Because that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Right, Teresa? Right. We, we're going to go a lot deeper than, you know, this feeling of bliss. What does that really mean? I found it a little bit like, I did a lot of self-study, a lot of sitting with this concept of bliss to really conceptualize and to move beyond. Oh, I just had this really great blissful day. This bliss sheath is more the experience of bliss, like joy would be the experience. And that blissful feeling might be more fleeting. And both of them are impermanent. Both of them come and go. They're you know, pretty porous. You know, you took the words right out of my mouth. You know, I found it interesting as we started speaking today that both of us really resonated. And, you know, I visited many websites, uh, different people talking about Anandamaya Kosha. That's what we're talking about today. And that's what I can actually pronounce. Like, I feel like <laughs> I'm not going to butcher it. Anandamaya Kosha. It's, yeah. It rolls off the tongue. It does. <laughs> and it sounds so blissfully beautiful. Anandamaya Kosha. Mm. Um, Something I wrote in my notes was bliss equals being, Ananda Mayakosha, the one we can pronounce. And this idea of, you know, just blissful expression that is unplanned and exuberant. I'm quoting from the Yoga Sanctuary website. 
and I should probably put my glasses on, that would be helpful. Striving to reach Anandamaya Kosha is a futile attempt, for it is only revealed when we release any form of mind control over it. Anandamaya is not of the mind. It is a deeper experience than that which can be contemplated. Even describing it in words is not completely accurate. The bliss of a child fully immersed in the moment, that is Anandamaya. This kosha um, can be accessed through practices of selfless service, can be accessed through meditation and contemplation. It can be accessed through experiences where we get, I'm going to put loose quotes around the word lost, because it's not really lost. In some ways, it's more found, but it's that feeling of release, of surrender, and of not choosing that, of being that. And so as you, I'm going to take you through a, a practice-ish, but the, the offer is to be of service. Do something outside yourself. I mean, right now we're recording this during the 2021 holidays. And so Christmas is coming, New Year's is coming, Hanukkah's passed. We've got, you know, that swirling energy of generosity of this time of year. And this, this sheath asks us in some ways to extend that time of year to the rest of the days. So whatever you can and whatever you can do is enough. When I think of the koshas, I think of the layers and sheaths of experience, but they're also um, their own selves, you know? So Anamaya kosha, the food body, you know? It's, it's not, in the tradition I, study in, primary tradition I study in, it's not lesser than, and this differentiates it from most yogas, which the body is lower and you're, you're after the spiritual world. You know, you're trying to like shed property and get toward Purusha, shed the material for the spiritual. So there's a hierarchy there. Mm -hmm. And the tradition that I engage in, it's not a hierarchy. It's just different aspects of existence. So it's interesting to think of the koshas in that way, because you have your, your, your food body and you have all the things in between, and then you have your bliss body. And then it's, it's also interesting because that's one that's the bliss body is supposed to be anandamaya kosha. It's supposed to be the one deepest inside, but actually whenever you see drawings of it, it's the outermost one. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of funny. Like even that, like how do you depict this concept is interesting. Is it so inside that it's outside or it's so outside that it's inside? Ah. But I like the idea that, you know, we're, we're, it's a householder point of view and we are embodied beings living possibly, hopefully, if we're lucky, a spiritual life. T-A-T-T-V-A-M-A-S-I. And it means you are that. And it's the recognition of the self in a way, the individual self and the universal self and recognition that we're not separate and recognition that you can find yourself, oh, there it is, <laughs> I'm that, yeah. You can find yourself in, in everyone, really, even people who are despicable. There's something, you know, you are, you are that, you are that, you are that. And you can look around and say, like, I am that. I am the flowers that I have over here. I have the books I have here. I am each of you. I am, you know, I am universal. I am individual. I am, you know, and I think it's just a way, it's kind of, 
like I always think of Ram Dass saying like, you know, treat everyone you meet like, like they're God in drag, you know, which is actually, I have to say, that's one of my favorite quotes ever too. <laughs> I could have just, depending if you had asked me a day earlier, I would have said because I think it's such a beautiful, generous um, way of looking at the world. And it's kind of the same. It kind of means the same thing at the end of the day. It's, it's if you can see yourself in others and in things and the people around you, it shifts the world, it changes things. I'll share a little practice, which is one of my favorite practices when I do all the time. And I'll, I think I can put it into words in a way that will be clear for people um, because it's, it, it has a little visual with it. So Om, you know, is in the realm of everything that exists and Nama, Shivaya. So that's the five acts of Shiva, creation, maintenance, dissolution, concealment, and revelation. So when you say this mantra, you're saying the Ananda Tandava, you're saying the universe. You are, and of course it's vibration is Shakti, is the goddess. So you have the god and the goddess all at once. You have the structure of the entire universe in Namashivaya. So Om is the great locator. It's like the thing that holds it all. And then Namashivaya. So this is what you can do. You can hold up your hands and you can put the base of the palms together and then touch the thumbs. Na, touch the pinkies. Ma, touch the index fingers. Shi, Touch the ring fingers, va, middle fingers, ya, namashivaya, 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 namashivaya. And my teacher, my main teacher, Douglas, taught me this in front of Dakshinamurti, which is the form of Nataraja when he sits down to speak and become a teacher. So he's the teacher, Shiva's teacher. And so that's where um, the boys in the temple chant. And they learn how to chant all the Vedas. They sit in circles and chant to each other. And this is where um, Douglas taught me this. <laughs> it's very sweet. So again, base the palms. Not You're going back and forth. You're going thumb, pinky, index, ring, middle. You're building your way back and forth toward the center. So, and there's so many fives, as we know. So, um, so na, thumbs, ma, pinkies, index, shi, Ring, va, middle finger, yeah. And just go namashivaya, namashivaya. And it takes, it takes a minute to like go do the back and forth. And then once you get, if you do it all the time, I do it in public places and no one knows that I'm chanting to Shiva. Now that we've reviewed the koshas, stay tuned for similar review of embodiment in our next episode, number 24. This mini interseason is a way to pave the path to both a new season of casual conversations about the stories the bodies hold and the stories they tell, as well as new programs and events that we are developing. We are excited to add our stories and practices to a new landscape, one that brings our invisible audience into sight. Check out our show notes for a special gift this week. And thank you so much for your support and love. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our Grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. 
So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos.